Well, good morning, everybody. How are you? Doing well? I almost fell when I came up there. Did anybody notice that? <laughs> I almost went down. I'm glad I didn't. Okay, let's move on, shall we? Um, why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles, if you have them, to Psalm 34, Old Testament, Psalm 34. And you know, one of the reasons we're, um, one of the reasons we're doing a study in the Psalms is because these ancient songs, and that's really what they are, can play a, an important role in our spiritual lives and in many ways shape uh, how we relate to God. Uh, in his book, The Case for the Psalms, Christian theologian and best-selling author N.T. Wright says, sing these songs and they'll renew you from head to toe, from heart to mind. Pray these poems and they'll sustain you on the long, hard, but exhilarating road of Christian discipleship. And I believe that's true. The thing is, however, we have to, uh, we have to hear them and understand them correctly. With that in mind, I want to read this psalm, Psalm 34, for you, which and it kind of holds a special place in my heart. I'll explain why uh, in, a moment, in a moment. But first, let me read the lyrics for you. It starts off like this. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see, the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people. For those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all of his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. You know, um, the opening lines of this psalm are... are, are uh, fairly well known, especially verse 3 that says, glorify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. In fact, um, when my wife Margie and I got married, we had the reference to this verse, Psalm 34, 3, uh, engraved on the inside of our wedding bands, uh, which seemed like a really nice kind of spiritually romantic thing to do. Uh, but full disclosure, uh, at the time I didn't consider the context or the overarching theme of this psalm, which is fear and suffering. Uh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, apparently, I ignored the subtitle. Uh, many psalms have a subtitle, not all of them, but some have, and these subtitles provide information about the psalm, the author, the type of psalm it is, the experience behind it. And the subtitle of this one is of David when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech who drove him away and he left. <laughs> Maybe not the greatest context from which to choose a verse for your marriage, but um, we've done okay. We've, we're okay. Um, so when you, you look at this psalm, and because David uses such beautiful language and, and, and rich imagery, and there's a lot going on in it, 
It's very easy to get caught up in the poetic minutia and lose sight of the general message. And I, I really want to try to avoid that. So what's, what's, what's critically important for us to understand, first and foremost, about the psalm is, is David's experience that's referenced in the subtitle. Keep in mind, David started off in life as a simple shepherd. And um, to everyone's surprise, including his own, God handpicks David to be king of Israel. The problem was, there already was a king of Israel. His name was Saul. And Saul wasn't particularly thrilled about being replaced by anybody, certainly not a young shepherd. And as a result, Saul became obsessed with David. He wanted to kill him. And so David runs away. And at one point, he tries to hide in the city of Gath um, among the Philistines who were uh, Saul's enemies. But some people there recognized him as the guy who killed Goliath, the great Philistine warrior. And so now suddenly the Philistines in Gath wanted to kill David as well. And so when he realizes this, he pretends to be insane. And he goes around clawing on doors and walls and drooling all over his beard and stuff. I mean, acting completely completely nuts. And the king of the Philistines said, this guy is out of his mind. Get him out of the city. And David escapes with his life. You can read the whole story for Samuel 21. Well, it's this experience that serves as the backdrop to this song. And based on the content, I think it's safe to assume David writes it years after the event, making this a song of reflection. You know, David is, David is looking back uh, on his life, and he admits to, at times, experiencing legitimate fears. I mean, think about it. Here's this young shepherd uh, whom God chooses to be king, and as if that wasn't a scary enough proposition, he suddenly finds himself fleeing from the current king who wants him dead. And then the Philistines, who he goes to try to hang out with, they want to kill him as well. I mean, really, overnight, this, guy, this guy's life goes from total quiet to total chaos. And he says, I was absolutely terrified in, in, in the midst of all of it. David mentions uh, here early on in verse 4, all of my fears, he refers to all of my fears. And the Hebrew term uh, he, he uses here for fear is a very unique one. It's used only two other times in the Old Testament. It's a fascinating term. It's one that could mean fear, as in dread or terror, or it can mean barn or storehouse, depends on the context, which is weird. Um, and then David uses the term in the plural. And I'm studying this word this week. I'm thinking, why did he use this word? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized it's as if David was saying, given my life situation at the time, I had a barn full of dreads. I had a storehouse full of terrors. I had an awful lot of fears about a lot of things in my life. And really, who could blame him? You know, there are a lot of things in life um, to be legitimately afraid of. That was true of David, that's true of us. Whether it has to do with you know, relationships or, uh, or jobs or money or, or, or our health, fear is the unavoidable and unpleasant human emotion we all experience when we believe that someone or something is going to hurt us, cause us pain or loss or even death. It's just, it's a reality of life in a broken world. Ernest Becker was a very well-known and respected American cultural anthropologist and a Pulitzer Prize-winning author. And in his classic book, The Denial of Death, he, he talks about taking life seriously. And, and he, Becker says this, he says, taking life seriously means that whenever we, whatever we do on this planet has to be done in the lived truth of the terror of creation, of the rumble of panic underneath everything. 
And then Becker talks about how what we as human beings, you know, when we, when we hear about suffering, we hear about tragedy, we hear about death, there's this psychological defense mechanism that kicks in whereby we think to ourselves, all oh, those terrible, awful things happen to those other people out there, but not to me. And Becker says, that's just fantasy. That's not taking life seriously because there are a lot of legitimate things to be afraid of. Luke Ferry is a, a French philosopher, and a couple years ago he wrote, wrote a book called um, A Brief History of Thought, A Philosophical Guide to Living Well. And uh, he says, one, one does not philosophize to amuse oneself, nor even to better understand the world, but sometimes literally to save one's skin. And then he talks about living well, and he says, living, living well in life depends on learning to conquer our fears of the various faces of death. And he says, perhaps the most terrible truth we must face is that we will inevitably be separated from all those we love, i.e., we die. And so both Becker and Ferry say that, you know, in life, jobs are lost, money runs out, relationships break up, accidents occur, tragedies happen, people get sick, people die, and these are legitimate things to fear. And how you deal, how do you deal with the fear? uh, Ferry and, and Becker would say, rationally or philosophically. Or there are some secularists who, who would say, you just got to suck it up. You know, uh, Bertrand Russell, for example, um, he would say, you know, life is meaningless, there's no point to any of this, and we're all going to die, and it's all going to blow up and burn up, so, you know, you got to live with it. He called it un, unyielding despair, and so every day you just get up and you say, life is meaningless, oh well, and then, I guess, eat your waffle or whatever. You know. Not particularly helpful. David is also saying that there are things to legitimately dread in life. And uh, he says that's true. But what was his way of dealing with his stored up fears? He says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Which is a fascinating statement. Because David doesn't say... I sought the Lord and he delivered me from all the threatening, scary, mean people and all the terrifying situations in which I found myself. No, instead he says, God delivered me from all my dreadful fears, which tells us what? I I think it tells us that when we face and when we experience the legitimate fears of life, what we need most is to be delivered from the fear itself not necessarily the circumstances causing the fear, because sometimes circumstances won't change and can't change. Sometimes people won't change. I mean, there are problems, there are troubles, there's suffering, there's hardships in life that are just unavoidable and beyond our control. And therefore, the only thing we can do is deal with the fear. And it seems to me that based on this song, David's suggested solution is that we trade one fear for another. We replace legitimate dreadful fear with what I would call redemptive fear. But that's my language. In David's terminology, he says, replace it with the fear of the Lord. And the Hebrew term he uses in this case for fear is different from the one in verse 4. In fact, after verse 4, every time you see the word fear in the song, it reflects a Hebrew term that means and carries the idea of respect, awe, honor, reverence. And then notice the word Lord is spelled in capital letters. Whenever you see that in the Old Testament, 
Uh, it means the Hebrew term being translated is the one God used when he identified himself to Moses. It's difficult to translate because it, it's just four Hebrew consonants. Uh, it's called the tetragrammaton or the four, the four letters. Our, our English equivalent is Y-H-W-H, and our best shot at um, pronunciation is Yahweh. And its basic meaning is, I am who I am. I will be what I will be. The term emphasizes the unique, self-existing, eternal, unchanging, all-powerful, transcendent, and sovereign nature of our Creator, the God who is too great, too wonderful, too awesome to be ignored, disrespected, disobeyed, or even fully understood for that matter. And therefore, He is to be awed. He's, he's to be honored. He's to be revered. And in this song, David is relating to us how when he was overcome with a storehouse of dread, you know, uh, just a, a barn full of terrors, he says, and again, he had legitimate reasons to be afraid. He says, rather than crumbling to pieces with reverence and awe, he sought the Lord. And the term for sought here means to intentionally pursue, turn to, look to, pray to God, his creator. And then in the rest of the song, David explains why that made sense for him to do. Primarily because throughout his life, he found the Lord to be what? To be attentive uh, and responsive to those who call out to him. And then not only that, David, David says a number of other things about God. He says, he says, by nature, the Lord is good. The Lord is good. He cares for those who fear him. The Lord, he says, is giving. Those who seek him lack no good thing. David says the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He's protective. And David asserts that while the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, those who look to him will never be put to shame. No one who takes refuge in him, David says, will be condemned. No one. Here's the point. In moments of life, when you have legitimate things to fear, those, and those moments will come for all of us, when you're afflicted, when you're in trouble, when you're brokenhearted, when you're crushed in spirit, David is advising you to turn to God, to seek the Lord, your creator, to call out to him, to fear him, to revere him above all things. In fact, David offers a brief lesson on redemptive fear in, uh, verses, in verse 11 in the song. He says, come, my children, listen to me. I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. Translation, uh, let me tell you what the fear of the Lord looks like. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Now, do you understand what David is getting at here? He wants us, he wants his listeners to know that fear of the Lord, true rever the true reverence of God, is not some ill-defined, elusive concept, but it's something that can be taught and something that can be confirmed. Uh, it's not merely subjective, but it's also objective. It's not just academic, it's practical. Fear of the Lord is not just about how you feel, but even more so about how you live. Redemptive fear of God is demonstrated by our, our obedience to what God says is right and true. It's reflected by living lives of honesty and integrity, lives that are good, morally upright, lives that actively and intentionally seek peace with others. And there are a lot of people 
in our culture today, even in our churches, who, who say they believe in God and revere him, but um, their lives of disobedience tell a very different story, a very different story. What story does your life tell? What story does it tell? Now, here's the irony in all this. So, you know, David gives this instruction, right, on how fearing the Lord means honesty, moral goodness, peacemaking. But if you think about it, who is David to be lecturing anyone on these things? Who is he, you know, to be telling us these things? I mean, if you study David's life, um, you find that in many, many instances, he was very deceptive, right? I mean, even in the events that, that serve as the backdrop to this psalm, that was true. David was less than honest when um, he pretended to be a lunatic, drooling all over himself. At other times, he just outright lied to people, did some pretty evil and violent things. One case in particular was when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, his friend's wife. He lies about it. She gets pregnant, and David essentially has her husband, who really was a loyal friend, had him killed in battle so that David could take Bathsheba as his own. And that's what popped into my head when I read this section of the song. I'm thinking to myself, David, who are you to teach anybody about honesty, moral goodness, and peacemaking? Who is he to say, listen to me? But then I remembered, this is a song of reflection. And my guess is it was written at a point in his life when confession and personal repentance before God was also part of David's experience. And we know that was true. In other songs, for example, he acknowledges his need of God's grace and forgiveness. He writes, remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me. For you, Lord, are good. Forgive my iniquity, though it is great. In one of David's most famous songs, Psalm 51, he writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I have done evil in your sight. You know, perhaps here in Psalm 34, uh, 34, perhaps David is essentially saying to his listeners, Please hear me out. I'm a broken, sinful man, and I've done a lot of messed up things, evil things, dishonest things, violent things. But God is good, and God is loving, and he's gracious, and he's forgiving. So if you will, allow me to dispense some wisdom to you, wisdom I've learned the hard way. Let me share with you what true fear of the Lord looks like. In fact, considering this song in its entirety, I'd suggest David is also revealing to us what genuine, genuine redemptive fear of the Lord leads to. Now, what does it lead to? For one, it leads to humble faith. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is sometimes, sometimes religious type people, you know, those who say they believe in God and, and, um, and all that, they tend to ex- express a faith uh, that's mm, a bit arrogant and entitled, one in which God is viewed more like an errand boy and a servant than uh, eternal creator and savior. You know what I mean, you know what I mean? mean by that? 
Dr. Chris Smith is a professor of sociology at Notre Dame University, and in his book, Soul Searching, he says most Americans, and especially younger ones, hold to what he calls a moralistic therapeutic deism. And how he defines that, he says that it's a belief in a God who really isn't particularly um, involved in our lives and doesn't really have to be, except when he's needed. He exists to make our lives better, happier, problem-free. That's the therapeutic part. And then if you're good enough, he'll be good to you. Maybe even late into heaven. That's the moralistic part. And this God is not demanding at all. He just, he's just kind of there, watching over things, remaining distant and detached the majority of the time. That's how a lot of people see God. Is that how we see him? Is that how you see him? I mean, does your faith trend in that direction? And if so, is that really a God you can revere? Hmm, I don't think so. Trust me when I tell you that is not the God David is talking about. He's singing about the one true Lord, the I am who I am, I will be what I will be, sovereign, almighty creator of the universe, who, you know what, does make demands and who does have expectations and who is involved in our world and in our lives. And while he will answer those who call out to him, he does not exist to meet our personal agendas. We exist to meet his. If that's the God we believe in, then how could our faith and approach to him be anything but humble? I think the Psalm of David also tells us that redemptive fear of the Lord leads to restful hope. You know, David is pretty clear on the fact that when it comes to things like deliverance, salvation, rescue, that it's God who does all the work. I mean, even in the text text itself, grammatically speaking, God is the subject of all those wonderful verbs. David says, it's the Lord who answers, it's the Lord who delivers, it's the Lord who encamps, it's the Lord who gives, forgives, saves, hears, heals, protects. It's the Lord who is non-condemning. Here's my Reiki summary. God graciously does for us wonderful things, things that we cannot do for ourselves. And the ultimate demonstration of this divine grace is found in and through Jesus. Now, some of you may say, what, Jesus? What are you talking about Jesus for? We're in the Psalms, man. Where does Jesus come into this? Well, I bring him up because if you recall, um, when Jesus was on the cross, uh, in an effort to speed up death by way of suffocation, the Roman soldiers went to the first man who was crucified with Jesus, and they broke his legs. In which, in which case makes him slump and expedites death. They went to the second man, they broke his legs as well. But when, if you recall, when they went to Jesus, they found he was already dead. So they didn't break his legs. Instead, they, they stuck him with a spear to be sure. And in his own personal account of the crucifixion, the Apostle John writes this. These things happened so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And with that quote, John links Jesus to the promises of Psalm 34. Because David writes, the righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all, protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Now, just, just as we saw a few weeks ago in Psalm 1, if you, if you look carefully enough, 
you look between the poetic lines of this beautiful song, you can see Jesus. I mean, think of him in terms of what's written here. For although none of us, including David, can be perfectly righteous, there is one who was, Jesus. He was the true righteous one, and not one of his bones were broken. Think about the rest of what's said in the psalm about Jesus. He was afflicted so we could be comforted. His heart was broken so we could experience joy. He took on our troubles. He was crushed so that we might be healed. He was rejected so that we can find refuge and acceptance. He was put to shame so we could be honored. The face of the Father turned from the Son so our faces are never covered with shame. The righteous one was put to death so we could be rescued. He died so we could be delivered. He was condemned so now there is no condemnation for those in Christ. You see? You see how it works? In Jesus, God came and did for us what we could never do for ourselves, which is why there's restful hope. You know, in religion, religion offers hope, but offers no rest because you never really know when you've been honest enough or good enough or peaceful enough or righteous enough. You just don't know. So there's no, there's no rest in that, only anxiety and you know, fretting and insecurity and all of that. As Christians, our hope, our hope finds its rest in what the Lord has done for us, not in what we've tried to do for him. See the difference? Our hope finds rest in what the Lord has done for us. And therefore, our redemptive fear of him, our reverence of him leads to unconditional love because when you finally and truly realize who God is and what he's done, how can you not love him? How can you not be committed to him? How can you not be loyal to him? In another song, David openly expresses himself saying, I love you, Lord, my strength, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer who is worthy of praise. I love you, Lord. You are worthy of praise. Which brings us back to David's opening verse of Psalm 34. Because of his fear of God, which leads him to faith, to hope, to love, it also leads David to continuous worship. Right? I mean, don't forget, in verse 1, David makes this pledge. He says, I will extol the Lord, the Creator, my Creator, at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. Now, obviously, David wasn't saying that he'd be in a worship service 24 hours a day, seven days a week, singing worship tunes. But neither was he saying, uh, I intend on worshiping God, mm, let's see, maybe one hour a week, sing a song or two. He wasn't saying either of those things. But in a beautiful, poetic way, David was saying, every day of my life will be a humble act of worship to God. And I will consistently praise him. I will, I'll speak of his love. I'll speak of his goodness. I'll speak of his grace. Translation, genuine worship isn't just about what we say or sing. I mean, that's kind of part of it, but it's, it's also about how we live every day, moment to moment. David says, I'm going to celebrate the Lord and all that he's done for me. I'm going to celebrate the Lord with my whole being. I'm going to do it every day. Who's with me? He says, even those of you who are troubled and afflicted, hear me, rejoice with me. 
Glorify the Lord. And to glorify means to act in a way that acknowledges God's greatness. So he says, glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And that invitation goes out to all of us this morning to glorify, to praise, to worship God. But, but here's the deal. Here's the deal. It's not just believing in God that will inspire you to do it, to praise, to, glor- to glorify, to, to worship. Uh, just believing won't inspire you to do it. Authentic, heartfelt worship is motivated by more than just an intellectual affirmation of God's existence. David, David doesn't say, think that the Lord is good. What does he say? He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. In other words, call out to God and experience for yourself that he is good, gracious, forgiving, and non-condemning. Have you done that? Have you experienced that? If so, then worshiping, worshiping him with your life and with your lips will come easily. It'll flow, it'll flow from your faith, from your hope, and from your love. And in response to who God is and all that he's done, um, as David did this morning, I invite you to glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Let's pray. Our Father, we all recognize that there are scary things in life. There are things that, that terrify us. There are things, legitimate things to be afraid of. That's the way it is in a broken world. But in those moments of terror, in those moments of dread, in those moments of fear, I pray that you would help us exchange those fears for a different kind of fear, a redemptive fear, a reverent fear of you, the creator of all things. And may we put our, 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 our faith in you, may we put our hope in you, May we love you with all that we have, all that we are. For you have come to our rescue. You have come to deliver us, to be our refuge, our strength. You've come and you've done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And it's because of your grace we can worship you. Because of Jesus, uh, we can lift our hearts and our, our minds to you, our God, acknowledging your goodness and your greatness. And so I pray that you would receive our worship this morning as we extol your name and worship you together and glorify you together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me? So one of the things... uh, struck me this week about Psalm 34 is how David talks about some things that we talk about and hear an awful lot, specifically about this idea of faith. The faith is not just this, um, it's not just intellectual. It is, it is intellectual, but it also, it's also experiential. It's both and. It's not just rational, but it's practical. You know, David says, 
you know, not only know that the Lord is good, but taste and see, experience it. And that's what faith is. Faith is both rational and experiential. And, uh, you know, I think there are a lot of people in church that they affirm who God is, but they've never really experienced his grace in their lives. They've never really tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You say, well, how can, how can you know for sure if you have? It'll change your life. When you do, it'll change your life. It'll transform you. And that transformation will be an ongoing deal. That's how you know. If you have, if you have some questions about uh, more about this, talk to someone you know from Parfew, or you can come up following the service. Some of our prayer, prayer team folks will be up here. That, that They'll be happy to talk with you. Maybe you're going through a patch of, of life where there, you, you have a barn load of fears, you know, a storehouse of terrors, and uh, you just want to talk to somebody about it. Have somebody pray with you. They're, they're here for you as well, okay? So I hope you can come back next week. You know, I got I to gotta be completely honest with you. Over the last couple of years, when I've, when I've thought about the Psalms, I've kind of thought about them this way. The Lord is my shepherd, yada, yada, yada. Happy is the man, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? And then I started reading them again over the last couple of months, and I've come again to realize how these, these ancient songs are so deep and rich. They're not just, it's not just poetry. They are beautiful, but man, they have some, some rich information and in, in, uh, helping us to understand who God is. And um, next week, we're going to look at a song that uh, I hadn't read in a long time. And when I did, it just I was like, I got to... I gotta, I gotta look at this more. And I gotta share it with everybody. So you come back next week. We're gonna take a look at it. I'll get, I'll tell you. I didn't tell anybody else what it was, but I'll tell you guys. It's Psalm 102. So read it. Okay. We'll come back and we'll talk about it next week. In the meantime, have a great, a great day, great rest of the weekend. Let me pray for us, and we're dismissed. And now, Lord, I pray that as we go from this place, your praise would be on our lips in a real way, and your praise would be expressed through our lives. Our lives would be lives of worship every day. For, because of who you are and what you've done for us. And as we live those lives, may we point others to you, the God who loves them. And so may your hand of grace and peace and strength now rest on your church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next Sunday.